On the surface, cities can appear to be very different places, but beneath the surface, they're really all the same in, in so many ways. They're communities that face the same challenges, the same issues, and yet some are, are, are brave enough, are crazy enough to try new approaches, and those are the ones that I think are succeeding. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns Podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm honored to be your host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is March 19th, 2021. And in this week's episode, I present a conversation I recently had with Nicholas, Nick Euler, manager of the Bikeway and Pedestrian Program for the city of Memphis, Tennessee. Nick and I dive into the details of the active mobility challenges this sprawling southern city faces and celebrate some of the amazing progress being made at the community support level and their emerging high comfort cycle network. But first, before we embark on those discussions, please allow me a moment to recognize that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much for your amazing support. And if you too would like to help support and promote Active Towns, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and click on that blue donate button on the top right corner of the page. For your convenience, there are links both in the show notes and on the landing page for this episode. One last thing before we get started. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform. These two actions really help with the visibility of the podcast. Thanks. Okay, let's get this conversation with Nick Euler rolling. Well, Nick, hey, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for the invite. It's uh, really my pleasure to be here. Thank you so very much for taking the time out of your busy, busy work schedule to chat. Uh, to start us off, can you briefly share a little bit about your background and how you came to this work? Yeah, um, I guess it really started going all the way back to my, my teenage years. I, I grew up in suburban Memphis a very car-oriented place, and had, you know, for years explored my neighborhood on a bike. Uh, it was the way I loved getting around. And as I got older, I had the uh, great fortunate opportunity to go abroad to Europe after graduating from high school just for a summer trip and uh, was just blown away by how different the cities were. You know, I, I had always assumed growing up that the lifestyle I knew was normal. And um, this experience from going to Europe for that short two weeks really impacted the way I saw, you know, the built environment. I didn't use those terms at the time because I was an 18-year-old, but, you know, the way I was thinking about the place I live. And that really got me going down the path of urban planning to the point that once I got to college, I eventually majored in it and decided that's what I wanted to do. And eventually settling on transportation as my focus area because the way that I saw it and from my experiences growing up and then eventually going back to Europe again and living in Europe, working in Europe a little longer, led me to believe that transportation mobility is, is key and the way that we interact with each other, the way we enjoy life. Yeah, so I settled on 
bicycle pedestrian and mobility planning, really. Fantastic. And uh, so, you, so you went to school for this, you graduated. Uh, did you go right to work uh, at the city of Memphis or, or was there a transition period? Yeah, there was definitely a transition period. After my undergraduate studies, I went to go work as an instructor in Germany at a college. And I meant for it to be a one-year kind of break before starting grad school in planning. I loved it. At one year, it ended up becoming two years. And finally, I had pulled myself away uh, to come back to the U.S., go to grad school um, in Texas for planning. So you can imagine the culture shock of coming back uh, from Europe, not just the U.S., but to Texas, uh, College Station, Texas, um, the differences there. And then after grad school, you're catching a theme here probably, I went back to Germany, back to Europe, for one year with a fellowship program that allowed me to work in transportation planning at the, um, at the Federal Ministry of Transportation in Germany and also with a transit association. And then after that time, Memphis in many ways was the reason I got into planning because I started thinking about you know, the environment that I had grown up in and how, how different it was. And I realized all of the, the shortcomings and the challenges that faced Memphis from a transportation mobility perspective. And so part of me always wanted to um, go away, go abroad, learn lessons, gain experience, and at some point bring that back to Memphis and try to make the city a better place. So after that fellowship, I figured the time was right. I came back and for a couple of years worked with our Metropolitan Planning Organization. And then a, a mutual friend of ours, Kyle Wagenschutz, moved on to People for Bikes. And that opened the position that I'm in now, the bikeway and pedestrian manager for the city. And for me, in, in many ways, it really is a dream job. So yeah, it's, it's worked out so well, and I'm just grateful for all of it. Fantastic. Uh, which cities in, in Germany were you based in? I mostly lived near Munich, but I also lived and worked for a little time in Berlin and Bonn. Okay. I'm familiar with Bonn and, and uh, in Munich, but uh, have not yet visited Berlin. When we look at the the German approach to bicycling and, and, and pedestrian types of infrastructure and, and the culture, the number of people who are really, you know, taking that up as, uh, you know, for active mobility. I, you and I both have, have had the opportunity to, to go to the Netherlands multiple times. And it seems to me from the cities that I've been to, uh, Munich was, was fabulous to ride in. And, and there was a quite a bit of infrastructure going in. Now that was a few years ago. It was actually in 2015, I was in Munich, but I also went to another city. Um, and now I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on it. That's really quite known for, 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 you know, bicycle infrastructure and things of that nature. And you'll, maybe you, you know, which city I'm thinking of. You're probably thinking of Munster. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I knew it was one of those. It sounded like one of those cheeses. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Exactly. That's, that's where the cheese originates from. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably the crown jewel of biking cities in Germany. It's just, it has, even, even in Germany, it has the reputation for being a very bicycling city. There's a, uh, there's a well-known German TV show, a crime, a thriller kind of crime TV show, um, that's set in Munster, and the main detective of the show 
rides a bike and it doesn't have a car. And it, it's just kind of like the, the stereotypical thing about Munster and, and its residents. Yeah, it's, Munster is definitely probably the best city in, best big city in Germany for biking. Uh, I mean, in many ways, Germany isn't the Netherlands. It isn't Denmark. Uh, the quality infrastructure isn't as great. But I would like to say, at least for Americans compared to America, it maybe feels more attainable, right? You know, we go off to these study tours to, the, to Amsterdam, to Copenhagen, and for us, it feels like this dream world, beautiful infrastructure. Everybody's on bike. It's just this idyllic place. And it can at times feel too far off for us as Americans. But Germany, its history and transportation is uh, has a lot of parallels with the U.S. A very strong call culture. You know, think of BMW, Mercedes, Porsche. Um, so a very strong car culture, just like in the U.S. And so they went down a path similar to us in the 60s and 70s of building very um, car-oriented places, not to the extreme that we did, but still um, more so than maybe the Netherlands or you know Denmark. And yet, in many other cities their typical mode share for bike is still 10%, 15%. So again, it's not the, the uh, utopia that is maybe parts of the Netherlands, uh, but it's certainly worlds ahead in the U.S. and has a lot to uh, teach us. Yeah, yeah. And I've made the comment that I, I feel like uh, the city that's most analogous in the Netherlands uh, is Rotterdam. You know, when we when we think about North American cities looking for a a Dutch city to sort of emulate or or learn from the the Rotterdam experience is very much uh, you know I think very applicable to us since you know the city was completely destroyed in world during World War II they built back uh, on the model of the automobile with very very wide streets and fast moving motor vehicle traffic. And then they gradually started to come to realize that they <laughs> sort of made a mistake and their, their, their city, the vibrancy of the city was very much affected by the, the car orientation. And so they've been systematically over the past few decades trying to transform themselves into a more people oriented city. So we mentioned people for bikes, and that's how you and I have come to know each other and, and spend a fair amount of time together over the past few years is people for bikes and Kyle Wagon Shoots and Sarah Studdard and uh, the Big Jump Project, uh, which you know concluded uh, a, a year or so ago, but it gave us the opportunity to spend some time together both on the road, but also in Memphis. Uh, can you sort of share with the audience a little bit about that Big Jump project, what the initiative was all about, and sort of the, the status of those efforts? Because I know some, even though the project may have sort of wound down, the efforts continue. So talk a little bit about uh, that part of Memphis and, and those initiatives, and then we'll mm -hmm. shift gears and talk a little bit more about the other exciting stuff that's going on in the city. Sure. Yeah. Well, the big jump in a nutshell, I would say, was, was a push by People for Bikes to, to develop a connected network. You know, for, for years, some of these kind of similar initiatives would focus on one signature project, which was a great start, especially when protected bike lanes were brand new. It was a brand new concept in the U.S., and you know, they're trying to push that out. But I think what People for Bikes noticed, and, and many others, is that that one signature project wasn't enough to really build a culture of bicycling 
and active transportation. You needed a network so that the places where pe the people wanted to go were actually reachable. And so the idea of a big jump, the big jump project was choosing one neighborhood or one district or area of a city and saying, okay, over a three-year period, we're going to do everything we can in this neighborhood to develop a network and get more people riding bikes. And so uh, 10 cities were selected to be a part of it, and I'm, I'm thankful that Memphis was one of them. We were in some great company, and we selected an area called South Memphis. It's a historically black neighborhood um, that has seen just decades of disinvestment and, and out-migration, and yet is a part of the city that has so much history, so many um, things that are just unknown to the average Memphian about it, because frankly, the stereotypes of it today is, you know, it's a place people in Memphis may not want to go to, and yet there's so much hidden there and so much potential. So that's the area that we focused on, and I would say what we learned early on is that we needed to take care of the, some more foundational items. Before we could really get to building a network of infrastructure, we needed a network of people. Because, you know, let's you know, face the facts, Memphis isn't Portland, you know, or these other great, you know, bike cities, Austin, Texas, let's say, that have, have been building infrastructure for decades now. So we really needed to start on a more fundamental level and just build uh, capacity with the residents, the business owners, and all the stakeholders in the neighborhood, try and bring them into this vision of how bicycling can improve the neighborhood in, in so many more ways than they could probably would have thought of. So we, we concentrated heavily on a lot of programming elements, organizing regular neighborhood bike rides that, that you participated in, the, the glide ride in South Memphis um, that grew into this great success. We had rides with 50 to 70 people participating on a, on a weekly basis taking um, teen ambassadors from the community and training them in, in bicycling, bicycling mechanics, helping them actually um, help us lead the rides to the neighborhood. And of course, we did some infrastructure improvements as well, but it really was about, um, I think, working with the people because you really need to start there before going and making you know, changes to the streets. Without having those connections with people, I think, your infrastructure projects won't succeed in the end. So where it is now, um, a lot of the infrastructure projects that were recommended from the, the planning process that happened here are now moving forward. So for example, we're just about to install this network of low stress routes that are all going to have a wayfinding signage so that people in the neighborhood can get to different des destinations in the neighborhood or in adjacent neighborhoods. That's something I'm looking forward to. And another current status that I'm really proud of is that those neighborhood rides, they're still going on. We've handed over control of them entirely to a neighborhood nonprofit, whereas previously, you know, I with the city and some other kind of outside entities were helping those rides take place, organizing them. Like we're no longer involved. They have grown to the extent that the local um, residents handle it themselves. So that's something, one of the things I'm most proud of really from the whole effort. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I agree. I, I think it's so incredibly powerful when you have 
a, a community like that that's coming together to really embrace these types of activities. I mean, the South Memphis Glide Ride, it has to go down as one of my all-time favorite activities that I was involved with, traveling all over the country, all over the world. Uh, I go back to those images and some of the footage that I shot uh, filming you know, the, the Glide Ride. I mean, it's having that sort of community-led engagement activity so incredibly important. And you're absolutely right, because it, it makes it that much easier, m- that much more feasible when it comes to trying to, you know, move forward that discussion in those activities. Uh, your the trust level within the community is much, much higher. So your ability to move forward projects in those neighborhoods is going to be that much more, uh, you know, successful and hit the mark because you're also able to have a little bit more of that communication, that dialogue between the community members, the nonprofits in the area that are that are helping uh, facilitate this. So it's all good stuff. Right. Yeah. And even, you know, people um, who who they themselves were just adamant that they will never get on a bike. You know, they don't, they don't care. But you know, coming to recognize the value of it, right? Like maybe they don't ever want to get on a bike, but they love that there's now more activity in the neighborhood. They love that now some teenagers in the neighborhood have something to do that previously they didn't have. Or they maybe have, you know, recognized that I'm never going to use that bike lane, but now that bike lane's there, the street traffic is calmer. You know, the, the cars are now farther away from the sidewalk, so I feel safer walking on the sidewalk. So... Yeah, just a lot of um, critical discussions that occurred because of really starting in that fundamental place. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know in the last 18 months, there have been some exciting projects that have actually hit the ground. Uh, and some of them were years in the making, and and some of them even had some sort of uh, almost tactical urbanism sort of interim phases to them. Why don't you bring us up to speed? What are some of your favorites that have hit the ground and are and are, and are now part of that high comfort, all ages and abilities uh, infrastructure that's coming together there in Memphis? Yeah, well, the top one and the one I'm sure you're thinking of most has to be the Hamp Line. It is a, a, an epic project in terms of its timeline. It, it started uh, 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago now. Um, Broad Avenue in in the Binghampton neighborhood of Memphis, where this this street that had once been you know this vibrant retail corridor had been all but forgotten because of an expressway being built parallel to it um, just to the south. So all the traffic, the car traffic, was removed, and people just kind of forgot that it was there, and, and it was almost dead essentially. And, and the business owners, the residents that were left around 2010 decided, you know, we have to do something. We have to have some sort of Hail Mary here or else, you know, our neighborhood's just done. It was right around the time that tactical urbanism was growing as a concept. It was still very new. And they heard about the Butter Block program out of Dallas and decided, let's give that a shot. So a lot of the early bicycle and, and the safe street advocates in Memphis were involved with this. And on one weekend, without asking the city for permission and great traditional tactical urbanism um, uh, tradition, 
They painted bike lanes on the street. They painted new crosswalks. They painted bump outs. They put planters out there. And then they invited the community to come out for this festival. And it was beautiful. Um, ten, about 10,000 people showed up for it on that weekend. And they saw the street completely re-envisioned in a way that they never you know, would have imagined. And it was proven a success. This idea of um, if we design our street to be more people-friendly, with bike lanes, with improved pedestrian conditions, and so on, it will be a more vibrant place and a place that people want to be. And it was such a proof of concept that the city bought into it and pursued a grant to make it permanent, to actually build out the permanent version. It was the first protected bike lane project in the state of Tennessee, probably one of the first in general, if not the first, but definitely the first one that had to go through our state DOT review process because it was using a federal grant. And so there was a lot of time spent going back and forth with state DOT because there were a lot of things that they just, you know, it's entirely new for them. And so it took a lot of time, but eventually we got to construction in 2019 and just earlier, well, I guess last year now in um, May of 2020, we opened, uh, opened it up. Construction was finished on this two-mile-long, two-way cycle track that's entirely separated with a raised landscaped median. It, it links the Broad Avenue Street with one of our – really, it links, links the street with our two largest, most popular parks, Overton Park on one end, and then connects down to um, Shelby Farms Park via the Shelby Farms Green Line. It does all of that and passes through the Binghampton neighborhood, which is another just um, very disinvested neighborhood uh, that has now been reconnected with the city in an exciting way. So that, I think, is really just this beautiful, perfect example of how tactical urbanism can lead to permanent change in a neighborhood and along a street. And I would say that probably starting at that point and learning from this, this one example, I think Memphis has really become um, a model for tactical urbanism. I think it's something that we do really well. Some of that's out of necessity. We don't have a big budget, quite the opposite. So some of it is if, if we want to accomplish the things on our streets that we know need to happen to make them safer, to make them more inviting, we have to be very creative with limited budget and you know, low cost materials. So other projects, that have now come on the last couple of years with, with tactical urbanism or places like Manassas Street and MLK Avenue um, that you've ridden on when, when you were last here and that you need to come back and see again because they look so much different now that have been completely transformed with decorative you know, on-street murals, crosswalks, protected bike lanes. Yeah, I think the network just keeps growing. And is that one in the, the, the one that's uh, near the medical district? Yes. Yeah. So a lot of the most transformative changes that are happening are in and around the medical district. And that's really because of an organization called the Memphis Medical District Collaborative. That is a, it's a nonprofit. It's a, a community development corporation for the medical district. And they are fully bought into the idea of just vibrant people oriented places and, and streets. And we partner with them. I think that's something else that Memphis does well and the other cities can learn from is, again, out of necessity, we don't have a lot of money um, as a city. 
we regularly partner with neighborhood organizations to combine resources, to combine capacities, and deliver these kinds of transformative projects on our streets. So with the Medical District Collaborative, you know, they chip in some of their money to make these changes happen. They might be able be, uh, to bring in a, a design consultant to assist us. So it's really through that kind of collaboration that a lot of these projects are possible. When we return after this very brief break, Nick shares a few details about a couple of exciting future projects that will provide critical links in the High Comfort Cycle Network. He addresses the trends that he has seen during the pandemic, and we talk about key takeaways for other cities. But before we roll into those topics, please allow me a moment for one quick request. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please consider sharing it within your network. Word of mouth is the absolute best way to grow the audience and provide additional momentum to the culture of activity movement. Okay, that's all for this short intermission. Let's get our conversation with Nick cruising once again. Looking forward, I believe I saw something about some future projects that are like some critical network connections. Bring us up to speed on on what's on the horizon that you're super excited about. Yeah. Um, well, something that we actually just announced publicly two days ago um, that I'm really excited about is it's an extension or a connection to a, a green line. Again, the Shelby Farms green line into a neighborhood of Memphis called Midtown. It's only about maybe one, one and a half, it will be about one, one and a half miles long, but it's so critical because it's really connecting a neighborhood that has the, the good bones for, you know, active transportation and connecting it with this bigger network now, connecting it to the Hamp line and again, the, the Shelby Farms Green line. It's, it's going to be our first application of using true, you know, bicycle boulevards or neighborhood greenways. Um, so it has some new concepts for Memphis. And what's even the, I guess the bigger piece that I overlooked is that to the west of where this area is now, there are other facilities that lead towards downtown. So this, this one new project, even though it's short, it in some way is going to be the last mile of this continuous 19 mile long corridor all the way from downtown on the west, the west side of the city, uh, because Memphis, unlike many cities, downtown is not actually in the middle of the city. It's on the western extreme, all the way from the western edge of the city to the eastern edge of the city, um, from downtown to the far suburbs. So I think once this one's done, it's going to be transformative, a catalyst. Yeah, yeah. It brings us back around to what we were talking about earlier with the Big Jump project of and the emphasis that people for bikes, you know, had, you know, five years ago when they transitioned away from the Green Lane project over to the Big Jump was this concept of encouraging cities to think about networks of uh, facilities. And so it's, it's sort of like the proof of concept was there that if you build truly safe and inviting all ages and abilities, facilities, protected infrastructure, people will use it moving beyond that concept of focus on just the facility and start thinking about it in terms of networks and a network of different types of facilities. You had mentioned a a bicycle boulevard or neighborhood greenway type of concept. 
Uh, but then you still have to have, you know, some of those critical connectors, you know, the, the bridges and the, and the things that need to take place that are often bridging the, you know, literally bridging the barriers that might be in place. Sometimes it's a river, sometimes it's, you know, it's a, a huge highway or, uh, or train tracks or some sort of a, a of a an obstruction that it really cuts the cities apart. So is there anything that we haven't yet covered, you know, in terms of, you know, either projects that are on the ground that have really been transformative for Memphis or something that that's coming that you really want to highlight? Yeah. Well, I would actually maybe just real quick build on what you were just saying in terms of, you know, proof of concept and, and overcoming a barrier a lot of times that barrier isn't anything physical, it's, it's mental. You know, just, just 10 years ago, again, I, I keep hitting on the Shelby Farms Green Line, it was the first major you know, greenway project built in the city. And, and people were convinced that it was going to be a failure. You know, people were saying, oh, well, this is Memphis, people don't walk or ride a bike here, what's the point of it? Or, or that you know, it's gonna bring in crime, all these kinds of things. So to have that go on the ground and within a week be proven this tremendous success just because hundreds of thousands of people were coming out to experience this. We even had a city council member who was on the record before it was built, before it was open, saying it was a, it was a waste of money. And then after it opened, again, on the record saying, I have never been more wrong in my life. <laughs> I get that proof of concept. Sometimes you just have to try these things, get them on the ground, no matter what the resistance is, and let people see and experience it for themselves. And, and once that happens, as we've seen here, there just is a growing demand for more and more of these kinds of facilities and people you know, catch on to it. Well, what's interesting too, because when you look at it from a human behavior uh, standpoint, oftentimes overcoming these mental barriers are you know sort of those seeds planted for cultural shifts. And so when I talk about creating a culture of activity and you sort of mentioned to it or you alluded to it earlier of, you know, oh, we're Memphians, we we don't do that. Well, guess what? You know, if if it's safe and it's inviting and oh, by the way, riding a bike is fun, <laughs> suddenly you can you can envision yourself doing that. And when you see your peers out there doing it and smiling and having a good time. Suddenly it's like, oh, well, maybe. And that was one of the things I absolutely loved about the launch of the Explore bike share program. It was this huge launch that took place and so many members of the the community came out and and were part of distributing the the bike share bikes out to the the various far-flung stations. And it was so cool to see the excitement and the engagement of the community, you know, you know, even out to some of those far flung, uh, you know, uh, neighborhoods like South, South Memphis. And so it, it's just a huge part of uh, of exactly what you were talking about is overcoming some of those mental barriers and and seeing that cultural shift taking place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was a that was a great event. I think about 300 of your closest friends coming out to deliver personally bike share bikes to each each dock that was created. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. You mentioned it earlier. You're you're continuing to see especially in South Memphis those community rides happening. Are you still feeling like uh, you know, there there's a little bit of that excitement of of normalization of people riding bikes, uh, you know, 
for fun, but also for, for utilitarian purposes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think um, the idea is becoming more and more accepted, but it's still going to take time. You know, I, I have to be honest with myself that we're starting from a place um, that was very car oriented. You know, we are a sunbelt city, a sprawling, uh, very sprawling city in the South that was built entirely around the car. So it's, it really is a paradigm shift in the way people think about the city and how to get around the city. But I am encouraged from what I've been seeing the last several years of, of more people riding, uh, more people considering biking for transportation and also encouraging just from new real estate developments that come along now, you know, walkability, even if, you know, a developer's version of walkability doesn't necessarily match my version, like they're trying to aim for it. They're trying to do something that makes a more walkable place. Even, you know, things like developers now on their own, uh, including bicycle parking, bicycle storage facilities within their new apartment building. Like we don't have to ask for it anymore. They're just volunteering it. Small things like that that indicate that, you know, people's minds are shifting a little bit. But again, it's, it's going to take time. And, you know, a lot of it is is getting the network in place so that people can access the destinations they're trying to go to. And I think a lot of it, too, is um, just overcoming a lot of the safety, the the real or the perceived safety concerns. And toward that end, we will be launching this year for the first time a, a communications campaign all around safety, active transportation safety. It's something that, that I'm excited about. It's something that is really sorely overdue in the city. I think you know, we, we've made a lot of progress in, in bicycling and bicycle infrastructure for the last decade. Just this past January, we, we surpassed 300 miles of bikeways now in the city. And just to put that in perspective, in, in 2010, we were the 18th largest city in the country and had less than 1.5 miles of bike lane. So in a decade, we've you know, grown by, by hundreds of miles. But where we still have a lot of work to do is in just traffic safety and particularly pedestrian safety. And that's something that my hope is with this communications campaign that we really start um, um, dealing with in addition to the infrastructure improvements that are needed as well. Yeah, and, and and obviously that brings us around to the topic of motor vehicle speed and that concept of needing to uh, do what we can to make our streets feel authentically safer and more inviting. And oftentimes that means that, you know, the motor vehicle speeds through those corridors, through those neighborhoods need to be calmed and brought down to non-lethal levels. Talk a little bit about what sort of transformed and happened in 2020 with the with the pandemic. In many cities across North America and around the world, people were flocking into the streets. People weren't driving as much and they needed space to be able to, you know, to, a, they needed space to be able to get to their jobs if they were essential workers, <laughs> you know, and they they may have shifted from taking transit to, you know, riding a bike or other means. What sort of played out in, in Memphis? And I know that's sort of a loaded question because, A, Memphis is a big city. But what sort of were some of the trends that, that you saw and maybe some paradigm shifts that took place with the populace? 
Yeah, I, I think what we saw here in Memphis mirrored a lot of the trends that you saw elsewhere in the country and other cities. We weren't um, unique, I would say, in that way. So for one, the number of people walking and biking on our streets just skyrocketed. Fortunately, we had an existing um, count program in place with some automated counters you know, around the city in, in key locations. If it hadn't been for that, this this would have just been some anecdotal observations and and maybe wouldn't have turned into anything else. But fortunately, we had these counters in place so we could actually get the data and did a study and showed that sure enough, as we thought we were seeing, there were places where the counts were three or four times higher than what we would have expected from you know, the data from previous years. I expected to see a rise, just again, based on what I, what I was seeing with my own eyes. I expected the data to, to show that. But I was shocked and surprised with what some of it was showing in some locations to be that, that much higher. And not just recreational traffic as well, because we have some counters that are on greenways or in parks that probably are um, counting more recreational traffic. But we have some that are in locations like on the street that are counting what I would think is, is more transportation purposes. And even there, seeing you know, that same level two times, three times as high, indicating that people are walking, biking more for transportation as well. And so, again, we were fortunate to have these counters in place to, to actually measure this because when we put this study out there locally, I think it got a lot of attention. And organizations that were reacting to the pandemic and still in the early days in, in, in April or so were able to alter their operations knowing that there are more people walking and biking on the streets. So a lot of our partners in the community that manage parks or some conservancy groups that manage parks or greenways realize like, oh, we, we have many more people walking and biking now than we thought. Uh, we had one park um, that actually closed all internal roads in the park to provide space for people getting out. Actually, I, I correct myself. We had two parks that closed internal roads to provide more space for people. And I think having that data um, really helped. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm making a case here. If you're a city, you don't yet have counters in place, <laughs> a count program in place, do it because it, it's really helpful data. And uh, let's, And then what we also saw is, on a more tragic note, a far more tragic note, is as there were fewer cars on the streets, people either because they felt they could get away with it or they just unintentionally did so because the street was more open – speeds increased as well. People were just driving faster and faster. And, and I shouldn't put it in past tense. They still are. And as we know, speed is the greatest determinant in the severity of a crash. So what we also saw over 2020, and I just finished with my team um, going over the data, doing some preliminary analysis of it, is we saw this just sobering, dramatic increase in the number of people um, severely injured or killed as a result of a traffic crash. It far surpassed previous records. In, in 2019, there were uh, 41 pedestrians killed in Memphis, which on its own, you know, on a per capita basis, I think that makes us, uh, I hate to say it, but I think it makes us one of the most dangerous cities in the country for, for pedestrians. That's a high number. 
in 2020, the, it was a 50% year-over-year increase. We had 64 pedestrians killed last year. And I, I have to believe there's a connection there with the traffic trends that occurred during or are still occurring with the pandemic as, as speed has increased. When a crash occurs, it's more severe. If there's a silver lining to this, though, and I guess there, there's hard to think of it in that way, um, but it's that I think people, general, general Memphians, have become more aware of how dangerous our streets can be and are demanding more action. Whereas maybe previously, speeding was seen as an, a pesky annoyance, maybe. It's maybe now being seen more and more as, as a dangerous, asocial activity, <laughs> like I think it should be. Well, that makes sense, too, if you think of it, because if, if simultaneously you have more people who are flocking to their streets, especially their community and neighborhood streets, but at the same time, you 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 have sort of that, that asocial sort of activity of people driving at dangerous speeds in those neighborhoods, there, there's a conflict there. And you're absolutely right. Because of the engagement of the community members and really building up that level of trust with the community members and engagement, you're going to have, they're they're not going to be shy about saying, you know what, we need to do something about this. We need to make our streets safer because we are out there. Our kids are out there. Our elders are out there. We need these to be safer. So for the listeners who've been listening in uh, about this, you know, overall, this is a very, very positive story in Memphis. Obviously, there's some uh, negative trends that we just talked about that need to be addressed and speed. It's, it's consistent across the country, around the world. Cities are taking, you know, realizing that they need to, to slow the dangerous speeding down. But for those listeners who are inspired by this success story in Memphis, what bit of advice would you have for them if they'd like to make a difference in their neighborhood? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say if if you are a community member, you're not you're not working for city government or you know some other government agency that that has a role to play in this. If you're a community member, advocacy matters. If, if this is something that you care about, that you want to make a difference in, you can't sit back and assume that somebody else is dealing with it, that somebody else is speaking up about these issues. I encounter that that mentality so much in my work, and it it frustrates me. You know, I, I speak to uh, members of the community who who do care about this, who want change, but aren't willing to go so far as to speak up to let their city council members know that this is important to them, to let um, their mayor know that this is important to them. And when community officials, when elected officials or just high-ranking you know, officials in your city government, when they don't hear from you, they don't know this is an issue. It seems, I mean, it seems simple, like, well, surely they got to understand that this matters or this is important, but you know, there, there are a lot of issues that are on their minds. And for better or worse, Sometimes it's whoever's loudest that gets the attention. So if you are a community member of a community, you care about this, you have to speak up. You have to let um, your leaders know this is important to you. And if you are, if you're on the other side, if you're a city official, 
along that same vein, you have to listen to the members of your community. You can't dismiss their concerns. You have to really listen to them and understand what the concern is. And you have to be willing to try new things. Because clearly what we've been doing for the last you know, half a century or more with the way we design our streets and our communities, it isn't working. You know, if, if dozens of people are being killed and maimed in our streets every year, something's wrong. Something, something is wrong with that system. Um, so we need to try a new approach. So out to those communities, to the city officials, I would say, don't be afraid to try something new and don't fall to the trap mentality of, well, that works over there, but that could never work here. I've, I've traveled around a lot in the US, in Europe. On the surface, cities can appear to be very different places, but beneath the surface, they're really all the same in, in so many ways. They're communities that face the same challenges, the same issues, and yet some are, are, are brave enough, are crazy enough to try new approaches. And those are the ones that I think are succeeding. Fantastic. Great advice. And I would probably echo uh, on the, the community member side, don't be bashful about letting the city know when they're doing something well, when, you know, when that bike lane goes in or that pedestrian crossing goes in, let them know how much you appreciate it and, and tell them, you know, give them... <laughs> Nick, he needs those attaboys too. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, John. Yeah. <laughs> the city, the politicians, the the senior executives within uh it, within the bureaucracies that are our cities, they need to hear the positive stuff too, because that gives them more cover and more ammunition to be able to fight off the you know, the NIMBYs, the folks that are just like screaming, no, we don't want this. You know, we just want to be able to drive as fast as possible. So speak up. Right. That That's a great point, John. That's absolutely a great point. I would just say that, yeah, I, I see that so much in Memphis. I, I really believe that the majority of Memphians, Memphians uh, just using bike lanes as an example, the majority of Memphians either want bike lanes or are ambivalent towards bike lanes. But unfortunately, the ones who are the loudest are often the people who don't want them. And that's what people hear, and that sets the narrative. So again, it is important to not just be critical, but to offer praise. Good stuff. I can't think of a better way to end this. Nick, as always, it's a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks again, John. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 65 of the Active Towns podcast. I sincerely hope you were entertained and inspired by this conversation with Nick. The story emerging out of Memphis is so encouraging because their struggles to become more conducive to active mobility resonates with most North American cities. If they can do this, then your city can too. Please be sure to check out the photos and reference links included on this episode's landing page on our website. And the show notes will include the reference links. As a quick reminder, please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any thoughts on future guests or topics. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, and again, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to my monthly Culture of Activity newsletter, which goes out at the end of the month as a summary of activities. And finally, if you're in a position to do so, please consider helping me out by making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. 
as a very small nonprofit, your donations really do make a big difference in my ability to deliver this content. To make that happen, just head over to activetowns.org and click on that blue donate button at the top right corner of the page. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.